So, what's this week's episode about? Ooh, I'm not really supposed to talk about it. What are you talking about? Well, that's just it. I'm not talking about it. What's it? What's it? What's it? I'm 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 really not supposed to talk about it. It's like the first rule. Well, what's the second rule? Well, I can't talk about that one either. Why not? Come on. Because it's the same rule as the first rule. Which is that you can't talk about it? I'm not talking about it! Marilyn Manson can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior. I can say... Oh, wow. violence in movies to higher levels of aggression and violent behavior. Recognizing that many children love violent movies. So motherfuckers are always trying to escape. Take, take a look around! Dodge this. Oh no. Which way to go? To the dance floor? It's on my stereo. But pay me no mind. I've seen the Fight Club about 28 times. My name is Shawnee Campion. Host of Take a Look Around, a podcast that finds itself at the intersection of new metal and Hollywood. As always, I'm joined by my ferocious but inert, my lovely but dangerous, my stinky but wonderful co-host, <laughs> Alistair Batesy Bates. How are you today, Batesy? Sean, I am so inspired after hearing that beautiful, beautiful bit of poetry. Is that the bard Fred Durst? It is. Uh, the, the bard himself. A lot of people uh, call Shakespeare the bard. I personally call Frederick William Durst the bard. You know what I call Shakespeare? The bitch. You ever read Hamlet? Piece of fucking trash. <laughs> Boo! Denmark stinks! <laughs> Look, Sean, before we get started, are there any upcoming new metal movies? I'm really glad you asked. I didn't want to get sidetracked because I feel like with each passing episode, people are worried that we're going to forget about this because we live in a time of almost permanent isolation for what people that are returning back to reality they're living on precarious ground as job opportunities relationships their mm. whole lifestyle is dragged out from under them so they look forward to this each week new metal movies are probably the only thing that's keeping these pitiful people alive yes i agree beautiful people <laughs> um can i have a drum roll of course All right, for the year of our Lord 2020, there are no new new metal films. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Should have seen it coming, dum dum. Come on, come on, get down with the mailbag. Come on, come on, get down with the mailbag. Come on, come on, get down with the mailbag. Send just a question and then we'll try and read it. This question comes from Patreon subscriber and official friend and financier of the program, Alexander Tullet, aka Breadface JPEG on Twitter. Thank you, Alexander. I, I would just like to point out now that Patreons will receive top billing. If if you are not subscribed, we will most likely ignore your question unless we've been asked. No questions by our Patreon donors. <laughs> Alex would like to know. What is the personal Durst number of the hosts? Well, I would like to claim two through personal friend of the show, Tom Gilmore. He interviewed DJ Lethal, and you may know DJ Lethal as the DJ of highly successful rock band Limp Biscuit which is fronted none other by William Frederick Durst. That's amazing. So that's, is that two? I think, I, I'm going to call that a two, to be honest. It's two. <laughs> <laughs> 
My personal, I cannot top Batesy's, uh, my personal six degrees of Fred Durst number is three. Now, a uh, friend of the show, Tom Gilmore, interviewed DJ Lethal oh. of Fred Durst's <laughs> band. Uh, t- Tom Gilmore is a close personal childhood friend of co-host Alistair Bates, <laughs> who I run a podcast with called Take a Look Around. Thank you very much, Alexander Tullett, <laughs> a.k.a. Breadface <laughs> underscore JPEG at Twitter.com. We appreciate your question. And money. <laughs> <laughs> This episode's special guest is, I would say, he was the first host to extend an olive branch to our nation. Um, And once we build a desert state inside of South Australia, he and his co-host will be welcome. And we may even make them wardens or some kind of aldermen of prefectures that we have claimed. Um, It is the man himself, the lovely gentleman, the co-host of the Brad Pitt cast... Joseph Earp. Joseph, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, how are you doing? I'm trying to work out. I don't think I have... Like, I think my own personal Durst number would exceed six. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, I just can't think of any connection I have, except for you, I guess. Yeah. Joe, you're, a, you're a returning guest. You're on our much maligned Resident Evil Tank episodes. Uh, so I think you can claim a four, to be honest. Oh, that's true. true. Yeah, very much so. I hadn't even thought of that. Aside from hosting the brilliant Brad Pitt cast, which is currently on hiatus... Um, so you guys have no excuse to not catch up. I was on the Devil's Own episode. You can hear me walk around in my... Uh, I was think I was wearing my pajamas and dressing gown. <laughs> <Were you? laughs> yeah, walking down around the park. the park in yeah. your PJs. I remember that this kid stacked it on their bike, like right in front of me, and I <laughs> was on the phone. <laughs> fucking dipshit. Just trying my hardest not to lie. Because I think you and Dan were talking about something pretty serious. <laughs> and <laughs> just this kid game. just stacked so close to me, and I was proper like... Oh fuck! I can't even help this child. I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> what fucking what would could Dan and I possibly have I serious to say I... on the Devil's Own episode? That movie's like, about the me. troubles, isn't yeah. it? Like, yeah, yeah I guess sort of. So. <laughs> kind of. Not only the troubles uh, in Ireland, but the troubles in uh, Middle America. <laughs> not only do you host a Brad Pitt cast, but you're also the host of This Is a Love Song, which is a romantic dedication radio program on FBI Radio. You can stream that every Sunday night at 11 p.m. You've also written for, like, legit fucking things like Bright Wall, Dark Room, Junkie, The Cusp, uh, SBS, and The Guardian. Um, those are fucking, like, that's actual names, I think. Um, uh, we asked you to come on today to talk about today's film because you are the resident Brad Pitt expert. No one else in podcasting can lay claim lay, lay claim to this title, well, except maybe your co-host, but uh, he was busy. <laughs> there was it. When we first started the Brad Pitt cast, there was another Brad Pitt podcast called This Is The Pits, yeah, right. and we, which is a, probably a better name than ours. And, but when we listened back to their old episodes, they had forgotten to edit in one of the co-hosts' audio. Oh, great. So the whole season was just like one person like talking to themselves <laughs> with these long silence. How did they I not notice They obviously that? just didn't listen back to their own podcast. <laughs> so we... That's so sad. We're like that... Who's that guy at the Olympics who sailed into first place oh, just because yeah. everyone else <laughs> fell over? Yeah. That's us. Oh. <laughs> Queensland hero, (laughs) Richard Bradbury, thank you very much. That's us. Now, today's film is an interesting choice for this podcast. We did a bit of soul searching, we looked in the tea leaves, we consulted CoStar. (laughs) We, uh, We wanted to know, is this a new metal film? And we arrived at the idea that yes, it is. And we'll get into that in more detail. But Joe, as our guest, can you please tell us what is the name of the film we are covering today? It's a little movie called Fight Club. Play trailer! I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. 
Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Welcome. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up all night. And she ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No, God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. He had a plan. <laughs> to what purpose? In Tyler, we trusted. We gotta take Fight Club up a notch. Each one of you has a homework assignment. You're gonna start a fight with a total stranger. That's not necessary. And you're gonna lose. <laughs> that hurt. for a way to change your life. You got it. I'm stopping this. It's already done, so shut up. What kind of sick game are you playing? Oh, my God. <laughs> you kids. This is too much. In the end, you will thank me. Whoa! Whoa! If you could fight anyone, who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. Smash cut. We get office drone Edward Norton, and he can't sleep. Is he a special little snowflake with insomnia? You betcha. He's a fucking little piece of consumerist shit who loves his white-collar job. He buys Ikea furniture over the phone because it consumes him. Does he remind you of yourself? I bet he does. Look in the fucking mirror, sheeple. My name is Bojack Horseman, and this is Rick and Morty. Yeah, I mean, Ed Norton already... Um... Quite an interesting choice, I guess. I would have personally cast Matt Damon in this role because I feel that Matt Damon is the ultimate blank slate that you can apply anything onto. He's got those beady little shark eyes. And surprisingly, uh, the thing about Matt Damon is that he's also wicked smart. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of How do you like damn apples? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah uh, so... Ed Norton plays an unnamed narrator who, uh, from what I can understand, is an automobile recall guy. Like he, he he works in insurance. He applies algorithms to ins- to accidents to find out if it's worth doing recalls. Like you. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't work in insurance, <laughs> baby. I keep the lights on, man. Now, Edward Norton, as we've mentioned, he can't sleep. He's an office drone who finds himself completely unfulfilled. So after begging for Valium at a doctor's, he's instructed to go visit a support group to find out what real pain is. He finds himself at a testicular cancer support group uh, where... This is the first of many chapter markings throughout the film's obsession with characters losing their testicles. I think every 15 minutes there's either a threat or a assumption or some kind of instance in which a character loses their balls. Right. Anyway, so bear with me. You're saying there's an, uh, an overarching theme of people fearing of losing their masculinity and will do anything to keep it and to claim it? Al, you betcha. (laughs) (laughs) Edward Norton finds that even though he doesn't have testicular cancer, he's able to lie to these people, including Meatloaf plays Bob, a man whose body compensated for his lack of testicles by giving him, upping the estrogen in his system and giving him 
giant honkers. pendulous milkers. <laughs> I'll edit that one out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our, our narrator is finally able to sleep, knowing uh, this about himself, that he's a awful scum-sucking parasite living off people's pain but who wanders into frame helena bonham carter of married to tim burden fame (laughs) arrives on the scene to take her place in the support groups she's there for the same reason that edward norton is she gets off on the fact that these people are feeling pain and she can finally get something out of it Edward Norton hates her because she's a lie that reflects his own life. I think the introduction of Marla's character and that line in the film is about the point that I felt like I had to take 40 different showers. What about you guys? How are you feeling right now in this movie? Um, I feel condescended to, which is something I really love when I go see a movie <laughs> or watch a movie. I love it when uh, something explains to me how stupid I am and how much I don't get it. Joe, what about you? Yeah, it's definitely the film is kind of strung together with these things that like the most annoying person at a party will delight in telling you stuff yeah. like, hey, did you know that they actually don't recall cars until there's like they've hit a certain number of deaths and like hey, did you know that there are people who get off on other people's suffering at support groups? (laughs) And it just ultimately, like, all of this kind of plotting stuff is is the stuff that makes me, whenever I rewatch this movie, I'm like, oh, fuck, do I like, do I not like Fight Club? (laughs) And then... And then in comes Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So what can you do? This whole part of the film could have actually been genuinely excised or cut down to a very small montage of what is a two and a half hour long film edward norton's unnamed narrator character finds himself on a plane flight back from work where he meets his single serving friend Uh, A single serve of someone you meet on an airplane that is your friend for an hour and a half. That friend is none other than Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden. Dressed to the nines as some kind of cross between, I want to say, Lane Staley from Alice in Chains and Zoolander. (laughs) Yeah, he He reminded me of the human fly. (laughs) Just those giant sunglasses. (laughs) Ah, I stayed up all night dying my underwear. You will fly here. <laughs> Durden is everything that unnamed narrator wants to be. He's cool. He's clever. He's Bojack Horseman. He's the Fonz. He's who everyone wants to be, baby. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Tyler Durden is the Fonz by way of the most annoying guy at the party (laughs) after returning from the plane flight unnamed narrator realizes that his apartment with all of the objects that made him who he is has been completely destroyed in a freak explosion he makes a call to tyler and they decide to have a beer about it there's a great line here where edward norton's character says you know i felt almost complete like i had the sofa and it meant that i didn't have to think about the sofa situation again that sofa situation was taken care of and this is delivered in the sense that this is him at the bottom of the barrel realizing that life is emptiness and as i sat there i was just like that's a legitimate concern. <laughs> <laughs> like, losing all of your stuff is yeah, a big like, deal. I mean, you know, but I would be fucking gutted if my fucking... <laughs> if, like, I had a house fire and lost my giant TV. And... Not even that. Just, like, losing, like, a place to be, a place to feel safe, a place for pride. Yeah, I guess that stuff's all right. Just to have it stripped away. <laughs> have it stripped away like that. Uh, it got me thinking that maybe the people that made this film might not have had some kind of serious incident ever happen. And maybe they were marketing it to themselves, to other people that had some kind of middle class and 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 we about what was sure. going on. Joe, any thoughts, Big it Dog? Does do. I do love the fact that all of this stuff with Brad Pitt is basically like a When Harry Met Sally style meet cute 
like the stuff on the plane where Pitt is is going like, you know, should I show you the crotch or the ass? And then, <laughs> you know, when he calls him uh, on the payphone and they have this like flirty conversation, which is what I think. Oh, absolutely. Where he's, he's munching on popcorn the uh, yeah. whole time, like pretending he doesn't the, know him. The joy of this film, I think, is that deep homoerotic tension <laughs> between Tyler Durden and the narrator. And boy, is there oh. a lot of that. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. So upon exiting the bar, Tyler informs unnamed narrator, hey, I need you to do me a favor. And it's not, hey, can you look after my cat for a while when I'm gone? It's not, can you help me move? Nothing like that. No, he wants something else entirely from him. He wants him to hit him as hard as he can. And I'm sitting there, I bolt up. I'm like, oh, hold on a second. This isn't stay with friends club. This is fight club. <laughs> what do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on, do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I guess their whole reasoning behind this as well is like, Life is bullshit, man. The only real thing, the only real thing in a world of fakery and lies is pain and violence towards each other. And in that, you can <laughs> find euphoria with your common man. It's at this point that the film dovetails away from a much, much more enjoyable film that's better made, that shares a lot of its same preoccupations. Is that this film... This exact moment in the film is when everyone in train spotting goes to do heroin. Sure. As Tyler Durden and unnamed narrator beat the shit out of themselves in the parking lot, we get a series of onlookers, one of which is Titus's boyfriend from the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mikey. This little tiff, I suppose, kind of snowballs into what eventually becomes an underground boxing ring. Unnamed narrator moves in with Tyler Durden, and uh, Tyler Durden, by coincidence, runs into Marla, Helen Bonham Carey... (laughs) Helen... Tim Burton's wife. Tim Burton's... Runs into Tim Burton's wife. That's terrible. Helen Bonham Carter. And they just begin screwing, and there's this fantastic, creepy, twisted monologue about how Ed Norton unnamed narrator just loves to listen to them fuck underneath <laughs> because he's got the bedroom underneath and you know he, he sure he could move but why would he like it's it's very um very gross it's <laughs> a great story that when in one of those helena bonham carter sex scenes maybe the first one with her and tyler durden she says when they in the original script she was going to say I want you to have my abortion. <laughs> and the shit that came out of this woman's mouth that I ain't never heard. I want to have your abortion. And the production company were like, there's no fucking way we're putting out a movie with that line. You have to cut it. So Fincher was like, listen, whatever I replace the line with, you can't get me to change that backup line. So whatever I change it to, that's set in stone. And the production company were like, okay. And then he went with the line that's in the film, which is, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, which is possibly <laughs> oh. worse. Possibly worse. <laughs> and the shit that came out of this woman's mouth that I never heard. My God. I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. You know, all those sex scenes are CGI completely. Yeah, the weird... Not even Helena Bottom Carter. Yeah. He said he wanted nice. it... Fincher said he wanted it to look like two statues fucking... Which is not what it looks like. <laughs> it looks like a PlayStation 2 cutscene. <laughs> yeah, it looks like something from Dead or Alive Beach Volleyball, doesn't it? <laughs> now, it, it's at about this point that we do get a lot of what we touched on before, which is the insane amount of queer coding in the relationship between Edward Norton and Brad Pitt throughout this film. That sequence where they're hanging out in the bathroom together, talking about how both products are being raised by single mothers, so why do they really need another another woman in their lives? Uh, well, both of them are just completely naked hanging out in the bathroom together. Yeah, it's very... um. I, I mean, 
I understand that it's a, like it's meant as a satire, but it is very much really kind of gross in its uh uh if boys don't have strong father figures they turn into gay kids and it's just... I don't know really particularly like given the the twist of this film like I don't know how that queer relationship is even meant to settle itself yeah because like what what is it actually trying to say with that romance self-love yeah i think so yeah that's a really good point it's not a queer relationship really in the world of the film it's it's a guy being like i'm pretty okay yeah yeah i like myself which if he'd worked out at the start of the movie maybe we could have watched the 90 minute movie wouldn't that have been great yeah he just goes to therapy and starts a course of antidepressants that work for him his boss is just like you look like shit and he's like I feel like shit Now, it's about this point where Fight Club starts to expand. Tyler Durden starts taking on this kind of mythic kind of quality, this Jordan Peterson type for the people around town. (laughs) And at this point, they start recruiting people into Fight Club. And not only that, but getting these people into this basement where they've built cots for them for whatever Fight Club is going to mold into next. I want to say that this is probably the point, the demarcation point around maybe an hour and a half into this film when it starts becoming enjoyable for me. Oh, when they become that weird, and not weird, but that anti-consumerist, uh, weatherman-style uh, domestic terrorist group called the Space yeah, Monkeys. Yeah, the Project Mayhem <laughs> uh, era of the film in which they are this like group of, uh, domestic terrorists that kind of go from being uh, uh, just common trolls to turning into a kind of a anti-far terrorist, domestic terrorist network throughout the everywhere. Uh, this is probably a, the exact middle point of the film. So if the first half of the film is this woefully obnoxious BoJack Horseman style satire of consumerism and and we and men at the tail end of the 90s, then the second half of the film gets a bit more Kafka, a bit more J.G. Ballard, as our unnamed narrator starts being unable to account for time as this terrorist network that sees him as a leader builds up around him. Which is why it's weird, right, that this film, I think despite the possibility that this could be seen as like a countercultural subversive film, I think this this film is weirdly extremely conservative. Yeah, for in sure. The, its take on these kind of counterculture group is that like they're fucking idiots yeah. yeah, and they don't know what they're doing. They don't actually understand the ideology that they're engaging with at all is like the joke of the film. They just want to break stuff. They go from punching each other to like, oh, let's let's roll a, a statue through a Starbucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the film, the film is doesn't like them. Yeah. I think, is the, it thinks they're dumbasses. And it's at that point that I wanted to touch on something that I was curious about. This would be my first rewatch since I was a teenager. And I remember in the early days of being about 16 or 17, there was a well-known gossip blog by the name of what would Tyler Durden do? Do you two oh, remember yeah, this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. Now, it was well known for playing into the idea of celebrities aren't just like you and me, but they're actually terrible people and that we should not just be looking glass at them, but we should actually be actively hating them. Now, that was an interesting angle for 2006 or so. But as time progressed, I was curious re-watching this. Whatever became of what would Tyler Durden do? It discontinued itself as a website. And the writer who revealed himself to be a man by the name of Lex Jurgens is now a blogger who writes specifically about white female privilege in universities, how anti-fire are the real terrorists. And it, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and it was just like, wow. I, it really did prefigure that. 
everyone that took this seriously really did kind of take away all of the wrong messages from it. It's about this time that the narrator kind of wakes up from this walking daydream he's been in and finds this terrorist group that's built up around him. He does what any good citizen does, and he does his due diligence to find that Tyler Durden has created this network of terrorists across America that all seem to report solely to Edward Norton's character. He mm. reports it to the police in this totally bizarre scene that could have it feels walked straight out of the same year as the matrix that incredible interrogation sequence in which they try to cut off his testicles for ratting out oh yeah yeah once again yeah getting rid of a man's testicles as opposed to (laughs) killing him Uh, yeah i mean it's a fate worse than death right yeah (laughs) edward norton runs out And he finds himself at the site of what is supposed to be one of these terrorist bombings that are about to take place. Where, dun, 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 what gets revealed, Joe? They're the same same fucking person. (laughs) Who's the same fucking person? Is it you and I? Are we all just the same? Are we not special little snowflakes? No, we're shit. We're dirt. Tyler Durden and unnamed narrator are the same fucking person. It blew my mind when I was 15 and I first saw this movie. I couldn't believe it. Say what? Um... And then, yeah, to get rid of Tyler Durden, the narrator just shoots himself in the head. Right, okay, so... (laughs) Sorry. This is my biggest problem with this movie. Yeah. How can you put a gun in your... Like, what's the idea? He shoots out the part of his brain that's Tyler Durden? I think he just, like... It's like a symbolic gesture of murder... Of killing yourself for... Is supposed to kill your imaginary friend? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the brain doesn't work like that either. Where he, like, where you, sh- where he was probably trying to shoot himself is the part of the brain that uh, regulates, uh, like, movement. Not, not so much. Not the Tyler Durden. <laughs> yeah, not your imagination. Yeah, big part of your brain. It's just like memories, and then yeah. next to that well, is Tyler Durden. <laughs> well, that's the problem. When a lot of people shoot themselves in the mouth, they sever the spinal column on that part of the brain, so they don't kill themselves. But it's not. It can often be a non-fatal injury, and they'll just end up paralyzed. <laughs> anyway, he shoots himself Damn, in the maybe mouth. You and should be I... in Fight Club, Al. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I study. Fight Anyway, (laughs) it's at about this point where my stomach turned, because I really, I don't know what it is, as I've gotten older, I just cannot deal with really graphically violent stuff. When it Ed, Edward Norton's unnamed narrator is just like, because he's shot himself in the fucking throat, I like was close to yakking like that really <laughs> freaks me out a yeah, lot the famous um, final sequence where edward norton and marla singer hold hands as the pixies where is my mind play as they look out over los angeles and watch all of the credit card companies explode to set the debt record back to zero. Once again, doesn't work like that. Yeah, <laughs> everything is backed up in hard drives. And oh my god, like a up to the cloud. Like even back in 1999, the debt record just doesn't go away. And then the movie just ends. It feels like for everything that was going on, like we're right back at meet cute. Like this is something out of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Which is weird because the ending of the book is that um, the narrator wakes up in a psych hospital after shooting himself in the the head. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, they're like, you've dreamt this whole thing. So the ending of the book is real bleak. But for some reason here, it has to be, as you say... What's the last line? Doesn't he say, like, you've met me at a really strange time? Yeah. You've met me at a very strange time in my life. (laughs) Fuck. Which I actually thought was all right. Um, I I had never seen Fight Club until today. I had... You're kidding. I'm not kidding at all. I had somehow just missed it entirely. When all of my friends watched it, I, I was telling Joe before we recorded, I got grounded. And just couldn't oh, go no. over to watch it at a friend's house. And I just missed the fucking boat. Because by the time they had watched it, they had watched it like three or four times in the space of a week. So when I finally got a chance 
they're like, oh, no way, man. We don't want to watch it. <laughs> it was just, and I hate watching movies by myself at the best of times. I, so I just never got around to it. And by the time I kind of got older, I kind of realized that a lot of people I thought of as lame were kind of um, taking into this, movie? into this movie. Yeah, for sure. And it just never appealed to me. I was a card-carrying member of Project Mayhem. I adored Fight Club. Yeah, wow. What I want to say, fourteen, fifteen. Sure. Joe, were you in the same boat? Yeah, I was. I remember my local video store used to do a ten weeklies for ten dollar deal back in the day, oh, and I think yeah. there was a there was a week where I rented like Fight Club, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, Donnie Darko. Like I got through that entire canon of like dorm room wall films that are essential. The butterfly effect. Butterfly effect. That's great. Oh man, oh. we tried to do uh, an episode on the butterfly effect, and we just we realized there's no way we could. There's nothing. Did funny you see? About have you seen it? the alternate like, ending where he tries to neck himself as a baby? Yeah. No, womb? I watched the alternate. Yeah, in the womb. <laughs> but we just yeah. realized like we finished it and we're like. There is no way we can even make a joke about like all of the horrible stuff that happens in it is actually legitimately if you had experienced some of the things that happened in that movie and you listened to the show, you would just be like it's unrelentingly upset about that <laughs> yeah. for no reason. For literally no reason. I like I watched it and was like, Sean, I don't know about this and then Sean watched it and was like, Yeah, we're pulling the pit on that. We're not doing we're not doing the butterfly effect. Don't watch it, guys. So what's interesting about the butterfly effect compared to Fight Club is just how divisive every single person's take on the film is. There are some people that call it absolutely repulsive. For instance, the executives yeah. of Fox. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch allegedly wanted to not pr- like let the film come out. Apparently he was so disgusted by it that he was... Wow. <laughs> yeah. There's... Uh, people like the makers of the film that insist that it's in the grand tradition of the graduate and that it is an absolutely scathing satire of uh, Generation X's men at the at the end of the 90s. And there are people like you and I that think that this is the dumbest movie in the world and prefigured a generation policy. I, um, I got the same feeling from it that I got from Wolf of Wall Street in the sense that it's like a satire, but no one's going to get, and you can't like blame audiences for not sometimes, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's not the audience's fault. It's just terribly told. Um, I worked in finance when Wolf of Wall Street came out and I remember just having the penny drop of like, Oh my God. I'm going to come in next week and everyone's going to be quoting that movie like it's the fucking coolest thing in the world instead of some moral tale about it. Did it happen? It fucking happened, man. It was nightmare. I would I remember going to an after work drinks and like I can't his name was Diamond. He ended up firing me because he caught me falling asleep in a supply cupboard. <laughs> Diamond. <laughs> Diamond. Let's yeah. get Diamond on the bar. Oh uh, man, I remember him just being like fucking loaded screaming, "I'm the Wolf of King Street." <laughs> and just yeah, man, like it literally I I just feel like it's the same kind of thing where it's like what? people just got the wrong impression from it maybe they both became like facebook memes right like tyler yeah. durden and jordan belfort are both like aspirational yeah. figures yeah totally. and i agree i think it's the fault in both of those cases with the fact that fincher and scorsese want to depict that stuff and stand at the slight remove that they think is satire. Yeah. And they're just, they're too much into it. They, yeah, they totally. enjoy it yeah. too much to be able to stand at that distance. Yeah. yeah. There's a quote that stuck with me from reading about the making of this film, which is that in the lead up to making it, uh, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt and David Fincher would all hang out in an office together, kind of, rehearsing the characters but also spitballing together what they called the David Mamet dialogue all of these grandiose speeches that Tyler would give and Edward Norton took particular umbrage with the fact that in 1999 they were re 
branding and putting out remodeled versions of the Volkswagen Beetle from the 70s and that this was this absolute dis disdain for his generation that they think that we're just gonna buy into some kind of symbol of flower power just because they've dressed it up like an iMac and I remember thinking like when I read this earlier today, I was like, dude, my friends are on temp contracts. Yeah. Like, <laughs> my friends don't get super. <laughs> like, you guys, like, you don't know what it's like <laughs> at yeah. all. You've never had a bad thing happen to you in your oh, life. I'm getting to live my creative dreams and be fulfilled and content. Fuck you. Yeah, no, I, I look. This isn't the only fucking shitty thing Ed Norton did. I think we should use this as a good segue for production. I want to hear what Ed Norton did. Tell me about his sordid little well, secrets. Not so much sordid, but uh, Ed Norton is famously, apparently, very difficult to direct and very difficult to work with. And apparently was just a nightmare on set, chucking diva tantrums, uh, trying to undercut Finch's authority on set, all, all just these crazy things that he's been known to do, uh, which is why he got booted off stuff like the Hulk, because apparently he was just getting furious that the director wouldn't take his instructions. <laughs> well, you can't let the Hulk get angry. That's the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. It's crazy to me that the guy who looks like a Midwestern pastor is apparently one of Hollywood's just angriest people the same thing with toby Maguire as well yeah right uh, that's so crazy but there's all the stories about him on american history x mm. getting involved with the editing to the point where the director just took his name off the fucking project because it didn't end up being the movie he wanted he's been i think norton has been like rejected from hollywood like a virus for that reason yeah people absolutely like, he's got a comeback film this motherless year. brooklyn is that the one oh, that yeah. is a piece of shit oh, really? so bad. <laughs> unbelievably bad i noticed in the trailer i was like You've had a part in every single part of this. You're the producer, the writer, the actor, aren't you? Like, that's what the trailer I, was my takeaway. Am I correct, Joe? Yeah, he, he, it's apparently been a passion project for him for years to adapt that book. And then just like, he says he called in every single favor to make it, which is sad because like, <laughs> definitely wasn't it worth sucks. it, dude. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's interesting to imagine Norton being difficult on Fight Club, though, because uh, Fincher is also famously super difficult. Yeah. Like, there were those stories recently. He's making a film for Netflix at the moment, and apparently... Can you hear Gary? <laughs> sure. Yeah, but I love having Gary on the pod. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Do you want me to put him out, or... No, no it's okay. I love okay, Gary. Cool. <laughs> sorry, Joe. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's making a... Fincher's making a film right now called Mank, apparently, for Netflix, and... They were saying... Not a great not title. Mindhunter, also not a great title. Seven with a seven. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. He struggles Button. with the title. All terrible titles. Um, yeah, and apparently he's been... They shot like a one-page scene of dialogue for three or four weeks. Because Fincher will just like make you do take after take after take. Oh, cool. Um, like the master Kubrick. Exactly. Yeah, just to say... Uh, apparently... <laughs> he and Norton... Uh, I think the fight on Fight Club that I've heard about was over the shot where Norton shoots himself in the mouth. And sure. you can see his kind of cheeks puff out. Yeah. And they did that with a little air hose that they sprayed into Norton's mouth. And they did it so many times that Norton was like, you're literally going to split my cheeks open. Like, yeah. We can't, keep, <laughs> we can't keep doing this for fucking two weeks. That's nuts. <laughs> My favorite Fincher on set story is that on the set of Gone Girl, he uh, and Ben Affleck had a dispute over the fact that... Oh, the uh, fucking hat. Ben Affleck, <laughs> yeah, Ben Affleck wore a Boston Red Sox hat the whole way through filming. And David Fincher, as an avowed New York Yankees fan edited out <laughs> to be a New York Yankees hat in post-production for the entire film. And that probably, based on, like, the costs in adjusted for inflation, I'd say that cost about 
seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, sure. Enough to uh, help a family in need, or several families in need, seven times over. Enough to bail out the people (laughs) that Fight Club pretends to care about. These these white collar ennui fucking losers, or the or the people waiting tables that pump your gas. Can we talk about the scene towards the end of the film in which they? pull a gun on an asian man working at a at a petrol station and like get him to talk about all of his personal failures at university and demand that he has to go back or they'll shoot him yeah totally normal stuff (laughs) what was that like that just feels like it's like left over from a completely different movie any part of this film that is supposed to be satire gets thrown out the window with that piece of absolute fascist racist garbage. Watching this really put together a lot of pieces of people I grew up with who had very severe personality problems. It reminded me of a guy I spent a lot of time with who ended up going to jail for not paying uh, a fine in regards to driving without a license. Because he's, he, <laughs> he thought that in a society such as ours where such sick things happen that it's his right to drive and he doesn't need to pay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. this weird... It's libertarian kind of power fantasy adjacent stuff. Yeah, like, definitely. Like, Anne Rand, I am my own person. I can do whatever I like. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's if it wants to suggest that this is how countercultural people think then it just simply doesn't understand countercultural movements at all no but i think that's the problem it doesn't actually want to speak for those people it's like a fairy tale it's not rooted in real world (laughs) ideology at all no absolutely which brings us to why have we chosen this film for a podcast about new metal well, well, I mean, this film itself... Can, does any of the attitudes espoused in this film remind you of any of your favorite people? Frederick William <laughs> Durst himself is, at this time, as quoted at the start of the episode, claimed to have seen Fight Club 28 <laughs> times. He was on first name and friendship basis with David Fincher, who he was noted to have taken directing lessons from in the early oh, wow. 2000s that, right? <laughs> uh, that would extend up to the point of which he would be making uh, the long shots. And Jesse Eisenberg's role in the social network was actually recommended to David Fincher by Fred Durst after having worked with Eisenberg on the set of The Education of Charlie That's Banks. So Does that mean the fanatic is indebted to Fincher? It's like... Oh, yeah. Durst 100%. walking around. Have yeah. you seen the... Yeah, it seen clicks it into place for me. But do you think Durst was doing like 700 takes with John Travolta in that <laughs> Oh, no. I think that Travolta gets it first take. He's an absolute fucking pro, baby. He's one and done. <laughs> yeah. Now, this wouldn't be the only intersection between Durst and Fight Club, as a few years after the film was made, for the erstwhile early Xbox, there was a film uh, adaptation of this for a video game of Fight Club. Fight Club is an incredibly basic fighting game featuring an all-star cast, including Bob, Angel Face, Irvin, Mechanic, Ricky, Lou, Raymond, and of course, Fred. Now, maybe this would be some kind of postmodern Hideo Kojima look <laughs> at fragile masculinity. No, this was a, a Tekken clone <laughs> in which you play a character that visits Fight Club during the events of the film and you fight your way up to the top of Project Mayhem through a series of just... You get three different fighting styles, one of which is martial arts. 
It's so crazy. As and you beat up these lowly little bums. And you can uh, unlock Fred Durst. <laughs> Absolutely. The entire game is playable as Frederick William Durst. We'll put up some clips from it on the social media. It's absolutely <laughs> insane to see. This, this game completely missed the point of whatever point the movie was trying to make. Because of how limited the cast is, some of the characters you can play as in the film are the detective investigating Project Mayhem, sure. the, the guy who they point the gun at at the petrol station, <laughs> and the nightclub owner who they beat the shit out of at the start of the film to get access to Fight Club when he wants to shut it down. Oh, it's it so looks crazy. like pure dread. <laughs> absolute nonsense. The only big name from the cast who returned for the video game was Meatloaf as well. <laughs> That's my favourite thing is that you can, in the video game, play as Tyler. But Brad Pitt didn't give likeness rights, so yeah. it's just some random <laughs> fucking guy. He looks like Johnny Bravo, <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> um... I mean, aside from the influence um, it had on Limp Biscuit, Fred Durst also used... I think we discussed this on the Fred Durst miniseries where Fred kind of lost his sense of self. And upon reflection of that, he is quoted as saying, at some point you have to think, I can't be this entertainer all the time. I can't be that guy. I am a creature I have created. How do I feed this thing? It's become like Tyler Durden. <laughs> this, oh. <laughs> this film also, uh, Papa Roach on their songs Between Angels and Insects literally recapped the plot of this film. <laughs> <laughs> but the soundtrack for this film, um, the original music was composed by the Dust Brothers who also composed the music for the seminal Beastie Boys record Paul's Boutique. Paul's Be uh, uh, the Beastie Boys especially laid down the foundation for new metal, not just with songs like Sabotage, but with their original album Licensed to Ill, where they rapped over heavy metal riffs. Even on Paul's Boutique, they sample a lot of heavy metal music, just as quick stabs or like bad brain riffs. Dude, the Dust Brothers have got genuine new metal Yeah, they chops. did Linkin Park they as well. Not only that, they were on the Spawn soundtrack teaming up with Korn. And they also wrote Mbop. And produced, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think Mbop has held up very well. I think it's such a perfect um, encapsulation and pastiche of like '60s bubblegum pop. I, I think even now when I hear it, I'm just like, hell yeah, man, Mbop indeed. <laughs> Can I tell a story that would probably get me fired if sure. I uh, if this leaks out? <laughs> uh, there's a woman at my work in a position of quite authority who has got a very severe personality and wields it around the office, who no one has ever been able to confront her about the fact that she's extremely upfront about using all of her annual leave every year to go on VIP packaged concert tours to go see Hanson in concert in destinations all over the globe. Wow, man. She is on first-name basis with the boys from Hanson because she goes to see them for four weeks out of every year for the past decade. you got to do something to break up the days, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, yeah, that's nuts. I can't even... <laughs> so we've briefly recapped the production. We've recapped the plot. I think now is as good as time as any to assign this film its bodies hit the floor score the bodies hit the floor score the bodies hit the floor score now joseph instead of rating a film five stars out of five we rate it five bodies out of five hitting the floor <laughs> <laughs> much like the the famous drowning pool song bodies as you're our guest i will let you go first how many bodies are hitting the floor for you buddy I, I'm like a, a dedicated user of Letterboxd, and on Letterboxd, I give this film three and a half bodies out of five bodies hitting the floor. Yeah, fair juice. Uh, you've got, I guess, as we were discussing, you and Sean both have pretty... Um, I mean, you, you as the Brad, Brad Spurt, uh, and, as well as having watched this film as a teenager, most likely have um, a, a more, not rose-tinted, but... 
I think it's pretty rose tinted. I yeah. think I, I think I just, I think at least three of those bodies belong to Brad Pitt in this film. <laughs> yeah, I think he's unbelievable in this. Film. Yeah, he's he really. This was a good period for him, like yeah. the Twelve Monkeys. Exactly. Uh, well, that's the thing, right? It's what Ocean's we learned. Eleven. Exactly. Yeah. It's what we discovered through doing his films in order. Is like. There's a lot of shit for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Like, his, do you know about his first film? Uh, Dark Johnny Side Guitar. Of, like, <laughs> no, even before, Johnny Guitar is kind of like gold standard compared to some of the shit you have to watch. Oh, before. really? <laughs> oh, no. But in his first film, he plays, it's called Dark Side of the Sun, and he plays a guy who's allergic to UV. So he spends ninety five percent of the film in a gimp suit. Oh, <laughs> full body gimp suit. I am download. I'm writing a note to remember to watch that. And he's bad in that film. And he was bad for I'll a lot of. <laughs> His early career has a lot of duds, and it takes him a long time to clock into place. So I think I have huge amounts of affection for this film because it's like Brad Pitt, who I love to watch, just suddenly coming into his own and just being so much fun yeah it's definitely the the classic um you know there's always that classic line about him being a character actor stuck in the body of a hunk yeah um, like the shit-eating quality and the kind of drawly quality i think he perfects here yeah absolutely um the indignance with which he delivers a lot of lines mm-hmm. especially when it's revealed that he's an imaginary friend. It's it's great line reading stuff. Yeah, no, he he really is carrying all the fucking weight for this movie. And he even I think improves stuff that wouldn't work otherwise. Like there's a bit where he where Ed Norton tells him the the bit that you referenced about like single serve friends on the plane and Pitt says something like, did you make that up for yourself? Like, that's very clever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's being this... a clever guy working out for you? <laughs> he does it in a way that, like, neatly undercuts the film's own ridiculousness, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Sean, what about, what about you? I think Joseph's take just then has almost bumped this up to a three for me, but unfortunately, I'm going to give this two and a half bodies hitting the floor. I loved the second half of this film like i said it's very like paranoid and bizarre but the first half just leaves such such a fucking poor taste in my mouth i'd love to know what the enlistment rates for the u.s military were after watching this film especially after september 11th about a year and a half maybe around the time this was hitting vhs and dvd Mm. coincidence yeah coincidence (laughs) maybe a lot of (laughs) a lot of people i feel like would have watched this and been dumb and angry and felt like the army would have given them purpose this is stupid (laughs) al you're up bad boy um i'm probably gonna give it a two um as i said i completely missed this as a teenager um and I'm, I think that's probably a good thing as well. I think this film would have caused me significant brain damage if I watched <laughs> it as a kid. <laughs> it would uh, probably make me lean into some of my more uh, less desirable and annoying personality traits. Um, Al and big sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i got big sunglasses. I mean, it's just... Um, I feel this would have made me revel in some of the antisocial uh, <laughs> qualities I have uh, buried very deep. Um, I, you know, as I was saying, I understand it's a satire. I thought it was very lame in its approach to pretty much everything about being a modern person and having to live in a society, as the Joker would say. It's a very Joker-pilled film. Yeah, it has, like, the rambling qualities that I really like in, like, Thomas Pychon books and stuff, but it's just... I mean, those books are also indecipherable, but it's kind of... I just... I, I really struggle with a lot of postmodern literature, and I really never got into, like, Chuck Palahniuk, and, I mean, I even tried... um infinite jest i just can never really get a handle of that stuff just because i find it very annoying <laughs> how about <laughs> Which... terminator 3 rise of the machines you like that? that that's, what we're, talking, that's yeah. what we're talking about baby <laughs> um 
but yeah, two stars. Um, I get why it was a fuss. Like, there was such a fuss made about it. But yeah, it's just much kind of like The Wolf of Wall Street. It just really wasn't a thing that I enjoyed. <laughs> All right, now, wasn't that fun? Joe, thank you so much for coming on the pod, being our returning guest. Is there anything you'd like to plug that you're working on at the moment? I don't think so. The The Pitcast will return sometime soon. We decided to kill our momentum dead after covering <laughs> the most popular Brad Pitt film to date, Ocean's Eleven, but we'll return. <laughs> You'll I return for his least popular films, yeah. Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen. <laughs> and fucking Troy and Mr. and oh, Mrs. Smith. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Troy is the only movie I've ever fallen asleep in. Is. That film is 700 years long. He lived lifetimes. Over Who directed? Was it Oliver Stone? It was Wolfgang Peterson. Wolfgang Peterson. Okay, yeah, wow. Das Boot. Mr. Das Boot. Jesus. Fuck. The Poseidon Adventure? Did yeah. You know that? He's like 104 years old, Wolfgang Peterson. He's still and alive. He's still alive. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> made a film in a long time, thank God. I love being alive. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sweet. If we wanted to find you on social media, Joe, you would be at... I'm at Joseph underscore O underscore Earp, E-A-R-P, on Twitter. Now, for us, if you'd like to tune in, we are running miniseries every month, a new one on our Patreon. Patreon. Uh, prices start as low as $5. $10 if you're not a piece of shit. Special snowflake. We are on Twitter as Take a Look Pod. Instagram is Take a Look Around Pod. Facebook is Take a Look Around the Podcast. And Spotify will be putting up playlists every week. To take us out this week, however, I would like to have the Dust Brothers Magnum Opus. <laughs> 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 <laughs>